Welcome to another episode of All Into Account. My name is Sam Azzarello and I'm the Head of Content Strategy for Global Research. Today I'm joined by strategists and economists from across the Global Research Department to talk about the mid-year outlook. Where do we head in the second half of 2023? 2023 kicked off with expectations of economic contraction after significantly elevated inflation caused by COVID-19 related supply side issues, Russia-Ukraine war leading to spikes in commodity, energy and food prices, and very tight labor markets led to elevated inflation, which in turn led to global central banks embarking on a very fast and very intense tightening of monetary policy. Now, the knock-on effects from higher interest rates led to risk assets being more volatile. When we then factor in the regional bank crisis in the U.S., it makes sense that there's been a lot of elevated uncertainty and market volatility. And that was only the first six months of the year. So where do we go from here? We're going to talk to our research analysts, strategists, and economists from across the research department to find out what their views are in the second half of the year. In particular, we're going to talk about the key takeaways for the outlook, what might have changed, if anything, from the outlook from the first half of the year to the second half of the year, and we're also going to talk about key risks and themes to watch. I'm Bruce Kastman, Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic Research at J.P. Morgan Chase. So our outlook for 2023 has really been based on three principles. The first one is that neither the U.S. nor the global economy is fragile or likely to fall into recession anytime, at least through the uh, third quarter of the year. Uh, that view is based on the idea that while respecting the tightening in monetary policy, there are other supports that are quite powerful uh, that are providing a significant offset, including the fading of last year's negative shocks, including the resiliency of a very healthy private sector, and including central banks that we think are tightening but still want to preserve uh, expansions. The second point is that uh, we do not think inflation is going to come back to central bank comfort zones by themselves. Yes, there's a decline going on, um, but no, we do not think you're going to get inflation back below 3% in the U.S. or the euro area this year in an environment in which supply has been damaged in a more lasting way and inflation um, psychology has shifted. Uh, the final point is that in a world in which you do not have sustainably lower inflation and you have resiliency, uh, there is a tension here and how that plays out and what it means for the life of the expansion is somewhat difficult to forecast. We certainly think the expansion is likely to end early both in the U.S. and globally, but we don't feel particularly confident in forecasting uh, the specific timing uh, we have a baseline forecast for the U.S. of recession ending at the end of this year, but I would emphasize the broad window that that's possible uh, in terms of what that uh, uh, timing is. And our bias continues to be on recessions later, on rate paths for central banks higher, and ultimately more synchronized recession dynamics, uh, and therefore deeper in terms of the ultimate outcome once the expansion comes to an end. So one of the odd parts of this year is that basically our key outlook themes have actually held up. So we really haven't changed our views in any meaningful way. If anything, growth and inflation, which we thought would be resilient to both surprise to the upside, central banks, which we had thought would start to downshift and possibly pause, do look like they're validating that. I think we're at an interesting juncture because we see different sectoral and regional performance than we had hoped for. Uh, the manufacturing sector, which we had hoped would be in recovery phase, 
by the middle of the year still looks weak. Services, which we had expected strength but had been looking for it to somewhat fade by this point, has not. So while overall performance has been somewhat stronger than we expected, uh, the sectoral imbalance between services and manufacturing has been sustained. That raises some interesting tensions, as does the regional story where we had expected the U.S. to underperform in a significant way. And that certainly felt the start of the year that way. Uh, but we've had U.S. Um, surprises to the upside more recently at the same time that China and Western Europe have been more disappointing. So this creates a wider range of uncertainty, but it hasn't really shaken our core views about growth resilience, about inflation persistence, and about broadly divergences in performance, even if those divergences haven't quite played out to our expectations. So I think there's a couple of risks here. The first risk is that we're just wrong fundamentally and that there is far more uh, downside pressure on activity right now. I think if that were the case, it would be coming from the fact that the weakness I just mentioned in the manufacturing sector reflects a degree of business caution that is going to spread out to the uh, broader um, uh, U.S. and global economy, and we would slide into recession earlier. Uh, the second major risk is that we're right and that inflation turns out to be more elevated than we expect. It turns out to be more broad-based in that problem across the world, and we have a more synchronized uh, recession with more restrictive and earlier tightenings on the part of central banks than we expect. And then I think the final risk here is the idea that we are not building in a financial market uh, event in terms of a shock in an environment in which central banks have moved quite aggressively and where there is these substantial pressure points that are coming from high inflation and credit tightening. We could be uh, missing something there that could turn out to be quite powerful and not within the contours of the business cycle dynamics that I've explained up till now. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I'm Jay Barry, co-head of U.S. rate strategy at J.P. Morgan. So as we enter the second half, um, we think that we're very close to the end of the most aggressive Fed tightening cycle that we've seen over the last 40 years. So as you heard from our colleagues in economics, we look for the Fed to raise rates one more time in July, but then go on hold and likely stay on hold until the middle of next year um, as the economy does slow, but inflation remains still above the Fed's target. So we think if we look at historical dynamics, once the Fed goes on hold, that's typically supportive of rates declining somewhat. Um, but on average, because the Fed has usually been lowering rates within seven to eight months of the last hike, we think that this descent is going to be a bit more gradual than it's been in the past. So we see scope for yields to decline over the second half of the year. But when compared to other post-Fed tightening regimes, we think this is going to be much more limited in scope, in large part due to those inflation dynamics, but also due to the global policy backdrop. The Fed will be continuing to draw down the size of its balance sheet, and other global developed market central banks are doing the same. And while this is a passive sort of story, we do find that there's a stock value here, that the Fed's share of the Treasury market, as it declined, should on margin steepen out the yield curve. So as we look into the second half, again, we think yield should modestly decline, but we think that there's significant room for the yield curve to steepen as well. In the first half of this year, we have been surprised by the ongoing resilience of the U.S. economy not just with respect to growth and the consumer, but to the labor market as well, because even as of the May employment report, we were adding more jobs than we would have expected just a few months ago. Um, and certainly, I think that's been a surprise, because we had previously expected that the Fed would be done tightening um, by May, but we now expect the Fed to hike once more in July as well. And as we transition to the second half, 
we do see signs that the economy is beginning to slow and that this should give reason for the Fed to go on hold after the July meeting. But more importantly, I think we're going to start to see the impact of the long and variable lags with which monetary policy acts. So the Fed's at the tail edge of its fastest tightening cycle in four decades. And as that sort of seeps into the economy, we think that makes the case for the Fed to go on hold, which means that this ongoing increase in yields that we've seen over the better part of the last 15 months should be coming to a close. And we should transition to a more traditional Fed on hold environment in which yields begin to stabilize and the intermediate sector sort of drags us in either direction. You know, for the second half of the year, it's absolutely starting with the Fed will be the most important one. Their latest projections indicated that there's room to hike twice more. And again, we think that there's only scope for one more hike. So we'll see how the market is pricing the Fed over the balance of the year. We're also really interested to see how the market digests Treasury supply as auction sizes increase. And that's meaningful because we think we're transitioning from an environment in which the Treasury market has been supported by price insensitive demand, the Fed, commercial banks, and foreign official investors towards more price-sensitive investors. Hi, I'm Stephen Dulake, Head of Spread Research at JP Morgan. In terms of our top takeaways or key features of our outlook for the second half of the year, um, unfortunately, as a result of things not playing out quite, quite as we had expected in the first half of the year, some of those key points are the same, in particular, some of the dispersion or decompression that we'd anticipated to see um, between high grade and high yield, largely because of a much firmer economic baseline. That has not been a good place to be. So we've actually seen compression rather than decompression. That said, we think it's a case of decompression deferred rather than um, delayed or postponed um, altogether. So we still think that we will see some level of decompression between the two asset classes as we look forward into the second half of the year. Um, I think the other thing which is quite noteworthy um, is that through, through the first half of the year we did see um, the securitized product space um, generally underperform uh, unsecured corporate debt. Um, and I think what that means um, is that uh, asset classes like mortgages today actually seem to offer some value uh, versus corporates and I think offer something of a value proposition looking into the second half of the year. Uh, I think a lot of that is technical um, related to fears of selling from regional banks. Uh, we've obviously seen the FDIC sales of mortgages related to SVB and Signature Bank be quite well absorbed by markets, but I think there's still some concern um, that you could see some regional bank stress and some further selling going forward. So mortgages continue to um, hang out by the hoop, so to speak, but we still think that they offer value uh, looking into the second half of the year. So in terms of changes, um, first half of 21 versus first half of 22, I think in order to think about some of those differences, you have to think about where um, quite frankly, we were wrong in the first half of the year. So I think we've seen generally uh, a lot more economic resilience. I think we've you know, faded a recession narrative twice now in the past six months. So you know, that was a narrative that was really focused on Europe going into the winter as a result of high gas and energy prices. And the weather and government, the government um, measures, I think, offset that. Today, it's really about the resilience of things like the, the US consumer, which you can see uh, across a multitude of different dimensions here. But I think what it means for creditors is that we haven't seen some of the, you know, having a much firmer economic baseline uh, has supported corporate cash flows. It's meant that ba balance sheets um, are entering the second year in 
pretty decent shape. As much as we do think we will see some deterioration as growth slows a bit, um, the, the entry point is, is pretty strong. So again, um, coming back to what, what we mentioned previously, is one of the reasons why the decompression that we thought we might see in the first half of the year is something we're rolling forward to um, the second half of the year. Keeping an eye on the financial sector is probably a good thing through the second half of the year. And I, I would highlight two things. Firstly, um, in terms of the resolution of what's been happening to the regional banks in the US, I think that the workout will be somewhat traditional, just as it was with the European banks or European banking sector uh, way back when. Things that could change that and hasten that and cause some stress, promote concerns of fragility would be if we do see large deposit outflows uh, as a result of um, the Treasury aggressively selling bills and looking to um, replenish its general account very quickly. I think that's something to keep an eye on. And in, in the spirit of everybody be having been focused or very concerned about the potential for a lack of credit availability as a result of regional bank stress and regional banks uh, pulling back and becoming more defensive, I think it will be interesting to keep an eye on the non-bank financial sector and in particular some of the large direct lenders, private credit providers and the extent to which they step into the breach. Um, and um, offset any potential decline in credit. So one negative, one positive, both related to um, the regional banking sector. Those would be the two things we're focused on in the second half of the year. Thanks for having me, glad to be here. Hi, I'm Fabio Bassi, Head of International Race Strategy at JP Morgan. Clearly, if you're going into a scenario where central banks are going to finish their tightening cycle, I think that that is going to create some opportunity to become more positive in terms of bond as an asset class. So we basically like to trade, uh, to go into the uh, second half of the year with a bullish outlook on uh, international rates. Specifically, we believe that there is room for yields to move lower as the, the central bank are finishing the cycle and then there are, will be expectation of lower rates starting in 2024 and thereafter. That basically means that uh, we are basically going to have lower yields in the intermediate parts of the curve and uh, a steeper curve. Going into the specific uh, dynamic, we think that in, uh, in the euro area, the ECB will be done with uh, another 50 basis point of tightening that we are basically now expected in, in July and uh, September. And uh, in that space, we like to be long duration in the intermediates. We like a steeper curve between five and the long end of the curve. And we also believe that uh, central bank on all in Europe is going to give uh, a demand for a spread product. And that's the reason why we are positive in terms of intra-EMU spreads. We came from uh, about uh, 12 to 18 months uh, of a continuous tightening cycle from uh, DM central banks. Uh, and clearly the journey of tightening is not done yet. Uh, central banks are making it clear that there is still uh, more ground to cover. And I think that that is going to continue. At the same time, some fragility are appearing in the system. And I think that we are basically going towards the second half of the year, where most likely are going to see a pause across the most of the M central bank. Clearly the distance to the target of inflation and evolution of the macro side is going to make a difference in terms of, uh, know the continuation of the journey and that will create some differentiation across the dm rates market 
Well, I think that the, uh, the, the dynamic in terms of uh, labor market is going to be critical for the evolution of inflation across the board. That is basically going to set the stage of how much is left in terms of central bank delivery and how farther they will go. They, reach, they need to reach a level of uh, policy rate that are sufficiently restrictive and then they need to be, uh, they need to stay restrictive for longer. And that is going to be a critical factor for the outlook in the second half uh, of the year. The other point that I would make is that for international rates, a key focus will be on Japan. Uh, we believe that in the upcoming meetings, the BOJ will eventually remove the yield curve control. And that is uh, something that is going to be monitored. But nevertheless, we believe that that is going to be uh, something that is going to be quite contained in terms of broad dynamic for Japanese yields. Hi, I'm Islam Ateika, Head of Global Equity Strategy in JP Morgan. The, the first and the key one is the potential change in the growth policy trade-off for the balance of the year. Because if you consider first half, it was pretty much a Goldilocks setup for the investors and for the equity market. On one hand, you had inflation, which was just steadily moving down. But on the other hand, you had a pickup in the growth momentum helped by the China reopening helped by the easing in the energy crisis in Europe. Labor market stayed very strong and that allowed the equity markets to perform well. And we are now at a point where S&P 500 is close to 20 times forward earnings with a record low volatility. So the question is, is there complacency building here? And we think what happens in the second half is peaking in the profit margins some cracks in the labor market starting to show, but at the same time, central banks will keep with their hawkish stance and potentially hike further. So that trade-off just doesn't look that good anymore for the second half. And in terms of the styles within the equity market positioning, we started this year with long growth, short value style, which is exactly opposite to the investment strategy that we had through last year and in 2021 where we were long value, long financials, long commodities and short tech at the time. So we changed that with this year. We think growth should be outperforming value. And the key call here is that this recent rotation in the market in June that we had the broadening is not sustainable in our view. Growth has done well so far if you exclude June, but we think in the second half of the year that is going to remain the winning strategy. In terms of the uh, key change to our positioning, I would highlight the regional calls where we had over the last year a very strong view that um, Eurozone is going to perform actually well and despite the war and despite a lot of problems that uh, markets have, going, have been going through the last year, our view was that euro area should be an overweight, an overweight especially versus the US. And we had a 30% plus um, move in dollar terms and that's why we think that that trade should be changing. We have last month cut eurozone all the way to underweight. We think the best of the positive drivers is is now behind us and the growth policy trade-off for eurozone is turning around to more difficult ones so that's what we changed regionally after favoring eurozone we have moved to underweight and i'll just highlight that uh, what we didn't change what we think should have legs is japan we started the year long japan from a global asset allocation perspective 
and we still think in the second half of the year the positives for the Japan will be prevailing. So in, in terms of what the investors should be focusing on, in our view, uh, first, it's the, it's the impact of monetary policy into the economy. Will it be really different this time around? Because many clients we speak to, they are basically saying, look, economy is not so leveraged um, anymore. And yes, interest rates have been going up, but consumer is strong. Housing market is going to be ultimately resilient without much house price falls. And therefore, the worst is behind us. And that's the question. Is that really the case? Because one knows that historically, one thing is always for certain impact of policy tightening onto the real economy always took a while to materialize. There was a lag, lead lag of one to two years, and Fed has only started to tighten last March, only a year and a few months ago. So to say that the worst is behind us, it might be just just way too early. So what we are going to be watching for second half is what is going to be the behavior of the consumer and behavior of the corporates, and especially corporate profit margins, as now we have had enough time for the higher cost of financing, cost of capital, higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates to work their way through the economy. So that's one thing which we're going to be watching. And second is really what happens with China, because China performed really well around the turn of the year as the reopening uh, helped, but has lost a lot of uh, steam, a lot of momentum since. So many clients we speak to, they are of the view that China data weakening in the last couple of months is is weak enough that is going to actually be good in terms of the impact because it's going to drive a new round of the stimulus. So that's the, the key to watch. Is the policymaker in China going to really unleash a, a meaningful, wide-ranging, market-moving uh, stimulus which can help arrest this growth decline? We have our doubts, but um, as we said, this is the important one to follow. Hi, my name is Natasha Kanova, and I head JP Morgan Global Commodities Research. Uh, so the long-feared recession is coming, but the magnitude and the timing is uncertain. So the baseline from our economists remains that it, it will be coming later this year, but the bias is for significantly later and significantly higher terminal rate. So, but overall, this you know imminent recession fears have materialized, and it's very visible in the recession in the positioning of the investors. So you know those skittish investors have taken cover. And if you look at the numbers, the net positioning in the investors across all commodities markets, it's at the lowest since since the start of 2019. And just for scale, to put this into perspective, positioning, investor positioning across energy, uh, grains, metals is at the lowest or even below the levels where it was at the peak of COVID. So that's that's very, very telling. So by definition, we are starting the second half of this year was very low positioning. So the way we view the market uh, over the next six months is that uh, recession is imminent, but we don't know when it's coming. In the interim, actually, the supply-demand fundamentals in every single market could play a very significant role. And because of that, those idiosyncrasies across the markets, assuming recession is absent, can result in about 8 to 10 percent return for the Bloomberg Commodities Index. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, so by, by commodity, in energy, we see 11 percent return. Again, all of that, keep, you know, absent, absent the recession. 
in the case of uh, oil markets, uh, the inventory started drawing. That should become one more visible uh, towards the second half of the year. We do believe $10 higher oil is uh, it's not only possible, it's probable in the case of natural gas markets, uh, the production is declining. We believe by July it will become visible across the markets. So hence upside there in metals, we're receiving the news that China might consider stimulating or will be stimulating, so that's a significant boost. If indeed the fears around demand are lifted, the inventories are very low, the market will start paying attention to that and that can result in another 11% return towards the end of the year. And we're bullish across every uh, agricultural commodity on developing El Nino. Yes, so in November of last year, when we put our outlook for this year, our, our number one call was to be bullish gold. We are maintaining uh, this position, so this is a long-term structural call on precious metals. The biggest uptick for that particular market is we need the Fed to start cutting rates. But regardless where we're today, we're range-bound, but we still see an upside. So if we look at the previous three Fed uh, cycles, during the Fed on pause, gold returns about 4%, and when the Fed starts uh, starts cutting, that's another it's another 11% return from that uh, from that perspective for the next six months. So, it's very obvious upside for the prices of gold um, from today towards the end of the year, we see about 4% return because the call from our economist is that the Fed will hike one more time in July, 25 basis points, and will begin cutting only into the second quarter of next year. Um, so that was number one call. We were bullish. We had a bullish call on, uh, on oil. Uh, we still have constructive view, $10 higher from the current levels, uh, exit rate for brand of about $85, $86 from today, $75. But the view is less constructive than it was compared to, uh, to our November outlook. In November, we had a view that U.S. natural gas prices would decline 40 percent. That was an excellent call. That materialized. So at this point, we are neutral to start, to slightly optimistic. Uh, and we had a neutral view on base metals and agricultural commodities that materialized as well from the current levels, the risk such as the upside. Uh, for very cyclical asset class like commodities, uh, China is definitely the biggest, the biggest driving factor. 55% of metals demand comes from that country. Uh, it's about 13% in energy demand as well. So. Uh, the difference between China stimulating and not stimulating, uh, it's another 5 to 10 percent return. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Johnny Golden and I head Emerging Market Fixed Income Strategy here at JP Morgan. So we're thinking in Emerging Market Fixed Income of a late cycle growth and inflation slowdown and possibly leading into a US recession as we get towards the end of the year. I think for the different parts of emerging markets, we think about that quite differently in terms of its implications. So starting first with local currency, uh, generally we prefer local currency bonds in emerging markets to sovereign credit or what we call hard currency. If we think of the drivers for local currency bonds, we have seen a large inflation cycle across the world and in emerging markets over the last uh, 18 months or so. That has led emerging market central banks to want to hike rates quite dramatically. We are now seeing inflation coming down. The forecast from our economists is that is going to continue and be more pronounced in the second half of the year. And that should start to lead to emerging market central banks actually cutting interest rates. And this should support EM local bonds 
even after the initial rally that we have seen uh, in the beginning of this year. So we came into this year uh, bullish and uh, on EM local bonds, and that is something that we are taking with us into the second half of the year. For currencies, it's a bit more of a mixed picture. We are neutral in emerging market currencies. We have some currencies, certainly, which have high carry and high real carry. Those are currencies like Brazil, Mexico, uh, BRL and MXN. And we think those currencies are positioned to continue doing well as we go into the second half of the year. But we also have a range of currencies. If you take out just a handful of high carry currencies, which actually don't give you much carry against the dollar at the moment, they have not really done anything so far this year in terms of a trend um, and those are currencies that we prefer to be underweight they're typically in Asia uh, and in EMEA EM time zone so that gives us regionally as well in in FX quite a split so neutral overall we like Latin America underweight in Asia and EMEA EM in terms of a regional split Sovereign credit is is the last, and as I said, we prefer to be in local rather than hard currency or sovereign credit, and that means we're underweight in, in sovereign credit as we go into the second half of the year. Um, this is an asset class where, aside from a handful of quite widespread countries which look like they have interesting opportunities the bulk of the asset class is actually trading at spreads around 40 basis points tight to their long-term average and for us given where we think we are in this cycle we think that looks too tight so we think it makes sense to want to be underweight there expecting wider spreads as we get through this late cycle and towards the, the real end of the cycle. So I think some of the factors feel quite similar to the first half of the year, uh, it, except we're a bit further on in that process. On the local market side, we came into the year feeling we wanted to be overweight uh, on the local market side, and we were. Um, now I think we feel a bit broader about that view. The inflation drop that was really a forecast coming into the year now looks like it's really picking up some steam in emerging markets. Uh, there is a stickiness that has been in, in certainly some countries and a bit more in developed markets in inflation as well, but both headline and core um, have been coming down in the, the first half of the year in an emerging market. So that makes us feel, even though it's uh, the same kind of theme, that we're getting a bit more confirmation on it. I think on the sovereign credit side of things, we are feeling that we came into the year signalling that late cycle recession risk later in this year would be an issue for us. We were more neutral early in the year, but we are getting closer to that. Uh, spreads are about the level where we came into the year. So uh, that's something where the theme has really developed with time rather than it being different. It's really just that we are further on in the cycle. The Maybe the one thing which does feel a bit different is the way the market is thinking about China at the moment and the impact that's having on markets. Coming into the year, China's rebound and opening up uh, after COVID was seen as very much a bullish driver of markets. Uh, as we're standing right now, the data is uh, looking a lot softer in China after a very strong Q1, uh, and our economists have been revising down growth in China. And so that's really gone from something which has been a tailwind to something as we're looking forward is, is becoming much more of a, a headwind uh, in terms of our own asset class.
So I think the first two themes are probably quite common to many markets. We are following the growth cycle, really trying to understand exactly where we are, particularly in the US growth cycle, but also uh, I've mentioned within emerging markets as well. We've had a lot of policy tightening. Naturally, with a lag, we would expect to see an impact on growth. We've yet to fully see that. The first quarter of the year was quite strong in emerging markets. Uh, and that's something we're going to be monitoring through the data. I think the employment data in particular is something which has yet to really show a significant shift that we would expect after that. And that's something which we think we're going to be looking at. And with that, second is something, again, most markets are looking at, which is what central banks are doing. We all take our lead uh, from the Fed in emerging markets. And the Fed's reaction function to data is going to be particularly important for EM currencies as well. And also the ability of EM central banks really to start easing their own monetary policy, uh, which they would like to do if the Fed is not going to be hiking a lot more. Uh, they may struggle to do so if we're seeing renewed pressure on the Fed to go more. And I think the last factor is something which is much more about emerging markets themselves. There is a lot of idiosyncratic situations going on in emerging markets, countries with a lot of significant developments. And we'll be watching to see how those developments come through. So Turkey is a major emerging market country which has just had an important election. And I think we are all waiting to see what is the new policy going to be after that. On the other end of the spectrum, we have quite a few small emerging market countries who are going through debt restructurings. Uh, and uh, we're going to be seeing how that is going and how those restructuring processes get through in the second half of the year. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hello, uh, I'm Mira Chandan, co-head of the FX strategy team uh, from here in London. Two themes to focus on um, in FX for the second half of this year. Uh, the first one is um, that, um, you know, we have a more uh, bullish view on the dollar um, in the second half that's based predominantly on the view that that global growth outside the US, particularly China and Europe, which had been quite strong in the first half, has run out of steam. And that should just allow currencies to uh, weaken versus the dollar. And the part of the universe where we do find the most value uh, being uh, short against that dollar uh, long that I mentioned is basically uh, the most vulnerable part of the universe. That's your low yielders, but growth sensitive currencies. You know, it's the likes of uh, Scandies, for example, uh, or, uh, or, you know, some stagflation candidates such as uh, perhaps Sterling um, and New Zealand. Um, the second theme um, that we are um, that we are focused on is um, is on carry. Now, carry has already had um, a stellar performance uh, for the last 18 months. Um, we think that it has perhaps a quarter or two more left in it, just given how high yields still are and how central banks are not expected to cut rates. But I think what's interesting right now is that you could be uh, selectively long carry because, you know, there are certain parts of the world which are becoming a little bit more fragile. You could be selectively long FX carry and hedge that with the dollar longs that I spoke about earlier. Uh, in terms of main targets for uh, for the major currencies, euro dollar, look, we've been of the view that it's going to trade between a 105 to 110 range. 
first half we thought uh, you know, euro dollar will spend most of its time on the upper end of that range, so around 110. I think given the drop off we've seen in the growth momentum in the region, uh, I would expect for that now to gravitate towards the lower end of its range, uh, 105 for the second half of the next year. And if you're looking for the big recovery, that's only um, a 2024 thing. Uh, dollar CNY, uh, looking for uh, for something like 725 uh, on that and underweight CNY um, as well. Um, I think the macro backdrop um, is markedly different in the second half of this year um, on, on two main dimensions. Um, the first dimension is um, something that's very uh, well known and well flagged, which is growth, where we've actually seen um, the growth momentum in China and in Europe running out of steam. You know, I mentioned the data started missing expectations in China about a month and a half ago. Europe as well, we started to see that. And I think that's very much in contrast to the first half, most of the first half, where we saw really outstanding and above trend growth and upside risks to growth in the region. So that, I think, is a big part that informs our bullish dollar view now. We consider this a regime shift. This change in growth is a regime shift, should allow the dollar to strengthen more uh, in the second half. So it does change the background dynamics a bit. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is is really on inflation. Uh, you know, first half, everybody was quite excited and very happy to see that inflation metrics were coming down across countries. And we're still seeing that with headline inflation. But what we are finding now is that core inflation is going to be quite sticky in some countries. And that's going to become a problem for the currencies in those currencies. And I would I would I would point to, for example, sterling or Sweden, uh, you know, stocky from from that point of view. So this inflation differentiation is going to be an important dynamic. Uh, going into um, the second half of the year. The predominant um, concern right now is the end of cycle dynamics that typically unfold after the Fed has paused. And um, the question here is, uh, I think the bigger question mark is around when will that, uh, you know, when will we actually um, hit that recession. Um, it's not around the ultimate destination. It's about how long does it take to get there. And so that's the one big dynamic and various metrics that our U.S. economists are pointing to uh, on the U.S. side for that uh, on that front that we'll be following pretty closely. The second thing I would say is there are quite a few idiosyncrasies that are showing up within the DM world that are related to this high hold measure. For example, housing markets have been quite differentiated uh, within uh, within the DM space with uh, house price declines being particularly large in um, in New Zealand and Sweden, for example. A lot of the other countries are now catching up to that. So we'd be looking at the differentiating housing dynamics, um, and we continue to think that the laggards there are still going to be uh, those those countries that I mentioned, um, Kiwi, um, stocky, uh, perhaps sterling. Um, and then you have um, this issue of stagflation, which is getting more and more pronounced in some countries. Sterling would be a prime example. Sweden would be a prime example as well. So those, uh, you know, those idiosyncrasies and lines of differentiation within DM is something we will be following quite closely um, in the second half. Hi, I'm Tom Solopek, head of cross-asset strategy. So we're talking about cross-asset strategy here. Specifically, uh, this is something a bit different from the other segments which are looking to the end of the year. In this case, we're talking about the three to five year expected returns for a number of asset classes at the mid-year point. So I think one of the key things to highlight has been the contradiction between the near-term environment and the longer-term view 
Uh, this is one of the purposes of this exercise, which is to build a bridge between the short-term house view or targets which go up uh, year out and a, a more medium-term perspective. And generally what we're, we're seeing in the market is a contradiction in the sense that recession probabilities for a lot of things are, are flashing red, whether it's yield curve steepness, uh, housing starts and permits, uh, sluice lending standards, a lot of those things are flashing a recession sign, but at the same time, we faced relatively mild market conditions with rising stocks and low volatilities. And uh, th that's left a lot of investors nervous at this point. When we think about the rally we've seen this year, it's been a rally, uh, for the most part, that was driven off very thin participation. Recently, after a jobs number, that participation jumped up and, and market breadth improved. Uh, we, we think that reflects short covering, uh, and, and so for that to improve on a longer term basis, we would uh, need to see more fundamental improvement. Uh, we don't think we've seen that necessarily in the sense that claims numbers came in worse, and uh, at, at the same time, the, the Fed on pause with, with, a, with a looking to possibly hike further later, later into the year uh, means that we are facing a restrictive environment which should be difficult uh, for stock. And in addition, I'd highlight the fact that uh, vol markets look artificially low to us with the preponderance of zero data expiry option sellers. So basically, what it amounts to is that uh, from the medium term perspective, uh, recession is likely still in the picture on the three to five year basis, which will be a drag on their expected returns for risk assets. Um, another thing that I'd mention is that when you look at cross-asset risk premia in general, what you find is towards the end of the cycle, they will tighten on the back of, uh, of a, a rally at the end of the business cycle. In this case, the risk premia have tightened uh, on the back of the uh, hiking cycle we, we, we've seen. Uh, so on the one hand, it's a different cause, that different way to get there, uh, but at the same time, the implication is the same, which is you should underweight risk assets and get long fixed income. Uh, finally, I'd mentioned that uh, of the things that we're worried about, we are, we are worried about market conditions, but we, we don't see risk premia as incredibly stretched. We don't see leverage as incredibly stretched. So we, we don't see something as dramatic on the valuation side. Uh, as we might have seen in the first internet bubble or, on the, or in terms of a recession, something like a GFC. So relatively moderate pullback relative to the history. So in, in terms of this, the changes we've seen in the first half of the year, of course, stocks have rallied tremendously off of the enthusiasm for generative AI. Bond yields have, have risen in the, in the past quarter, although they failed to reach the highs of, uh, of last year. What we've seen there is a repricing as investors now see less easing going forward. Vol also has the potential to go higher, even as it's fallen dramatically in the, in the first half of the year. In the first half of the year, we saw the continuation of this rally, which started in the fall of last year, vol fell from the 20s to where it is now, fairly low levels. Uh, on the one hand, it's a reflection that a fair number of problems were moving in the direction of resolution, namely inflation continuing to fall, European natural gas prices falling, uh, China reopening. But at the same time, the thing that has brought vol down we would question whether it can continue to go much further, and we would also be a bit concerned about the possibility, possibility of volatility going a lot higher as, uh, as the job market starts to uh, erode and, and excess cash cushion starts to disappear. 
Um, and another important thing to consider with the, with the changes this year is basically ways in which we can be wrong. So for instance, if we would tend to downplay uh, in this exercise the extent to which generative AI will be beneficial, uh, I, I think it would be useful um, to consider the possibility that we can have a, a productivity shock, uh, better margins, uh, disinflation. The one counter we would have to that is that uh, if we did have that disinflation, uh, the way our model is, is positioned, it, would, it should also help uh, fixed income expected returns as well. So it probably would not have that much of a dramatic shift. Another thing we would mention that is that there's been the theme of de-dollarization. This uh, three to five year outlook uh, is, is expecting the dollar to fall based on its overvaluation on a, on, a, on a rear basis. Really what that does is the de-dollarization means that it may actually fall more than we expect. So it won't actually contradict our results, but it'll reinforce our results, but it may produce a, a bigger fall in the dollar than we might have expected. In, in terms of the overall theme we're watching, uh, the, the big one for us is really the end of the the end of the hiking cycle, the end of the QE era, the end of zero interest rate policy, and really what that's done to the relative mix of expected returns across the asset classes. So focusing things on the uh, three to five year horizon, stock returns are well below long-term averages. Meanwhile, credit returns on a three to five year basis are generally above long-term averages. For, for high grade, we would expect that the expected returns are in the vicinity of the starting yield, whereas in, in high yield, expected returns will be worse than, the, uh, worse than the starting yield, reflecting an uptick in default risk. Uh, in terms of government bonds, the expected returns on a three to five year basis should be better than stocks, uh, but worse than credit. They will be worse than long-term averages, but improved due to the hiking cycle, due, due to their improved level. At the same time, we should also get a return on the three to five year basis, which is better than the starting yield, uh, reflecting our rate cuts that we would expect in 2024. Finally, putting this all together in terms of a portfolio, if we take these expected returns on a three to five year basis, we'll focus on the three year, three year example. If we compare it to a 60-40 benchmark, running a black Litterman optimization using these inputs would suggest 12% underweight in equities, uh, in particular in underweight to U.S. stocks, 1% uh, overweight to government bonds favoring U.K. gilts, and finally, 17% overweight in credit favoring U.S. high grade. So for anybody interested in three to five year capital market assumptions, please reach out to our team. Thanks for listening. For access to all of J.P. Morgan Global Research's mid-year outlooks across asset classes and regions, head to jpmorganmarkets.com.